Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Hi, and thank you for joining us for another episode of International History Declassified. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Mariana Bujarin. Dr. Bujarin is a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and is a Wilson Center Global Fellow. Her research focuses on Ukrainian and Soviet nuclear history and is the author of the recently published paper Budapest Memorandum at 25, Between Past and Future, which explores the legacy of Ukraine's denuclearization 25 years ago. Mariana, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, we wanted to to start off talking about the Budapest Memorandum. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it is and uh, how it came to be? Uh, yes, absolutely. So the Budapest Memorandum, or um, as it's known by its formal name, the Memorandum on Security Assurances in connection with Ukraine's accession to the NPT, was... Um, a memorandum of understanding. It's a political document that was signed between Ukraine and the three NPT depository states, the United States, the Russian Federation, and the United Kingdom, as part of the bigger deal, uh, nuclear deal, uh, to get Ukraine to disarm and give up its the nuclear weapons that it had inherited from the defunct Soviet Union. So recently, um, more specifically after 2014, uh, this Budapest Memorandum came under new scrutiny uh, and, you know, lots of people started uh, talking about it and remembering it, exactly what was signed and what was promised back in 1994 when the memorandum was signed. Uh, specifically in connection with Russia's annexation of Crimea and further sort of stoking the the conflict in eastern Ukraine that is still ongoing. Um, And the reason why this document came to to the fore again is because um, the nuclear powers of the NPT depository states, uh, the signatories of the memorandum, specifically pledged Uh, a number of security-related commitments to Ukraine in exchange for its denuclearization in the memorandum, um, including not to use force, a threat of force, uh, any force, not just nuclear weapons force, um, 
to respect its territorial integrity and the inviolability of its borders, not to use uh, coercion, uh, political, economic, or otherwise against Ukraine. Um, and very clearly, um, with the annexation of Crimea and the you know, de facto change of Ukrainian borders, uh, that has been a clear violation of this memorandum. So this is the memorandum in a nutshell, and it's a sig contemporary significance. But um, now as you know, both policymakers policy and researchers are paying new attention to it, there's a, a debate or rather kind of an exploration exactly what was promised back in 1994, exactly what the significance of the memorandum was, uh, and does it have wider repercussions for the, for the international non-proliferation regime uh, and the future efforts to dissuade you know, other potential proliferators from acquiring nuclear weapons mm -hmm. going forward? That's that's really interesting. I'm 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 fascinated by this, and and uh, and and you you've sort of led into uh, w one of the the follow up questions that we had uh, had intended to ask here, which is, you know, what are the consequences uh, in 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 the world today? Uh, how is this still playing out? Um, and I, I'm actually just just curious, you know, as as this was negotiated and agreed to uh, th this many years ago, is it is it still interpreted the same way? Is is it uh, you know is what was promised still understood, or is that still an active debate that that is going on uh, presently? So that the, 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 these are very good questions, um, and there isn't a straightforward answer uh, to them. Part of the effort of trying to understand exactly what the, the future, the repercussions might be for the, for the non-proliferation regime is trying to kind of reel back and look at the history of the negotiations and exactly how in, in that particular context, what was meant by it, as it were. What role did this memorandum play at the time? Um, and, you know, as someone who has been working on Ukraine's nuclear history and looking at the documents and the history of the negotiations uh, between Ukraine and Russia and Ukraine and the United States and a number of uh, nuclear related issues, including the uh, specifically the nuclear guarantees or assurances um, that went into the memorandum. Uh, at the time, it seems that it was a huge, hugely important issue for Ukraine, because um, let's remember that Ukraine had started its path towards independence uh, with a nuclear renunciation. So when it was uh, kind of imagining itself as an independent state, it was trying to establish greater autonomy from Moscow. Still back in 1990, so a full year before the Soviet collapse, it had passed the so-called uh, declaration of state sovereignty. Um, and, you know, all sorts of Soviet republics were passing similar, uh, similar declarations at the time that, in fact, tried to sort of pull away from Moscow's control. Uh, and in that declaration, unprecedentedly and unprodded by any outside power, uh, Ukraine declared that it in the future, it intends to be a non-nuclear state and to abide by three non-nuclear principles that were, you know, uh, sort of enshrined in the NPT, which is not to develop uh, or otherwise acquire um, nuclear weapons. And it was included in the text of the declaration and sort of passed without any major debate. 
Uh, and when I tried to look into what were the reasons for this, uh, for this sort of unilateral nuclear renunciation at the time, then the reasons were twofold. One, of course, of course, was Chernobyl and the general anti-nuclear sentiment that had prevailed at the time. It was a huge psychological trauma that left, uh, you know, reverberated uh, across the Soviet Union, not just Ukraine, but also in Belarus and in Russia, um, and sort of exposed how, how rotten and how dysfunctional the, the Soviet system had been, not just to, to create conditions for such, a, uh, for such a disaster, but also in the mishandling of the aftermath, the neglect, of the, the cover-ups, right? So rightly so, I think it was Gorbachev uh, who, uh, who considered Chernobyl as a huge contributor to the Soviet collapse ultimately. But also there was another aspect. There was an understanding in Ukraine at the time that sort of the system of nuclear command and controls that was highly centralized, it was all sort of centered in Moscow, it was super secretive, that unless you cut these ties, these military and command and control ties, from Moscow, Ukraine would not be able to gain full independence, that through these military kind of ropes, Moscow will continue to control it. So there was sort of this political insecurity reasoning behind renunciation. But when the Soviet collapse suddenly happened, you know, August 91, there's this coup, things start unraveling, and it suddenly became clear that it might not need to, to take this military disentangling to attain Ukraine's independence, that sort of the political body of the Soviet Union suddenly sort of slipped out of its shell, um, then the Ukrainian discourse changed. And, and the more strained the relations between Ukraine and Russia, the two you know, newly independent states that emerged from the Soviet collapse, the more strained these relations became, the more reluctant Ukraine became to move quickly on the nuclear issue. So Ukrainian, certainly Ukrainian government had never officially reneged on their stance of nuclear renunciation, but they simply became more cautious. And Budapest Memorandum was one of those sort of in-between tools um, where you didn't have to to offer a full-blown alliance to the state, nor did you have to go to war or impose punishing sanctions. It was sort of that in-between solution. And in that, it was very valuable, and therefore its violation, uh, and you know, some might say, at least under Obama's administration, kind of lack of response on the US side, on the Western side, is ultimately very damaging uh, to the overall non-proliferation regime, simply because it kind of invalidates one of the one of the tools uh, that was there before. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it, it begs a number of different questions. But uh, I'm particularly curious when you mention nuclear material for fuel, it brings to mind the uh, Tehran Declaration from 2010, um, where they had a similar idea. Uh, that kind of Russia would provide uh, fuel for Iran and Iran would turn over its nuclear material. Um, do you think Iran had the Budapest memo in mind as, as these sort of negotiations that uh, granted fell through, um, but while they were discussing it? And do you think the Budapest memo was the beginning of this type of idea and the first sort of uh, promise of fuel for material? So, um, 
the the megatons for megawatts or the swap of highly enriched uranium or compensation for highly enriched uranium was not per se part of the Budapest memorandum thing, but it was part of the greater deal, nuclear deal with Ukraine. At that time, it was unprecedented. It was actually a scholar from MIT, um, Tim Neff, I believe it was his name, that came up with the idea because it stemmed not so much from like with Iran of trying to persuade a potential proliferator um, to, de to disarm or to curb their nuclear ambitions, um, mm -hmm. but from the realization that the Soviet Union, the entire sort of former Soviet territory is in really, really bad shape and the political authority is falling apart mm -hmm. and there's mm -hmm. all these weapons, there's all these nuclear materials and the world sort of didn't know who who was guarding the gate anymore and you know disarmament takes money too it costs money it's it's expensive it's expensive to build weapons it's expensive to dismantle them and uh the soviet union and its constituent republics were broke so the idea was yes we have all these arms control treaties uh, start being one of them. Um, be, before that, INF w had just finished its implementation in the first missile was blown up in, um, in June, I think, 1991. And that start was signed. And that was almost a half, you know, 50% decrease, you know, anywhere from 35 to 45% to decrease in warheads. What's going to happen to all these warheads? Like, how quickly can you dismantle them? And what are you going to do with all the pits? What are you going to do with plutonium that's released? What it, it was a simply a logistical sort of organizational matter. And um, Tim Neff was, was thinking about it and published already in October, I think, 91, an op-ed, maybe in New York Times, but I might be... Uh, my memory might not serve me so well on that. But anyways, he, he published um, an op-ed saying, well, what we can do, we can offer to buy some of it off their hands. They need cash. We need them to implement uh, their treaty commitments. How about we do this? And, you know, this the early 90s post-Soviet collapse, those were really innovative years in, in nuclear nonproliferation and I mean, this was really unprecedented time. And nuclear superpower just fizzled away. You know, it's, it ceased to exist. Like trying to even psychologically grapple with it. Like yesterday, we were like training our missiles on them and, and, and fearing, you know, decapitating preemptive strike. And today, we don't know who's controlling the weapons. We don't know what's what. We, you know, we don't know how they're transporting these weapons from the non-Russian republics to Russia um, and all that. So this was the megatons to megawatts was one of these really innovative ideas. And it took NAF a while to lobby that through the government. As you can imagine, there was resistance because, you know, sort of out of the box solution. But when it did <clears throat> happen and it, it ran for, I want to say 17 years or something like that, uh, where U.S. kept buying off this highly enriched, uh, the, the blended down uranium from Russian warheads, um, then, you know, it was really quite successful. I'm not sure, I'm not aware how much learning 
specifically from that program uh, was transferred over to the Iranian deal. I think there was sort of part of it was a politically sensitive kind of arrangement that wasn't Russia or, or, or it was in the U.S. or the West mm-hmm. specifically that somehow would be involved in this fuel uh you know, fuel management, uh, as it were, but it would be sort of more neutral and friendly countries such as Brazil and Turkey uh, that would be engaged with that. And, you know, in mm-hmm. that sense, you know, it's, it's sort of finding a politically acceptable and also workable solution to basically a technical problem, right? Right. Yeah. Just sort of exactly like a, a, a real world solution to a real world problem. In right. That sense. Yeah. It's interesting. It's fascinating. I, I do really, uh, it, it, some of these, what you're telling here, it does, it does sound like it was a lot of unprecedented territory that was, that was going on after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, almost a wild west of, of what to do with these, uh, with these, with these weapons and these materials. And, uh, uh, definitely a lot of, a lot of uncertainty that perhaps, uh, Continues on to this to this day. Um, I'd like to shift gears just a little bit here and, and talk about the uh, the NPT review conference uh, that was scheduled for this year, but I think has now been postponed due uh, due to COVID. Um, what is? Uh, can you maybe speak a little bit about Ukraine's uh, approach going into this review conference and maybe how the the Budapest memorandum uh, sort of affects and, and and skews their their approach to this? To be honest, my view is that since since the disarmament, right. Uh, Ukraine has not really taken very good advantage of its non-proliferation credentials. Uh, If you compare Ukraine's policy in the area to that of Kazakhstan that became, you know, a champion of nuclear non-proliferation, that spearheaded the creation of Central Asian nuclear weapons free zone, that has been working with IEA on on creating the uh, low enriched uranium fuel bank, uh, right, in in, um, Oskemen, where in northern Kazakhstan. I mean, if you look at any major initiative in non-proliferation, Kazakhstan is in it. Ukraine has been sort of a little bit bitter about its experience, which I think is not a very productive way to go about it. I think things are changing a little bit right now. I see it, um, if not so much with NPT review uh, cycles, uh, then just recently, Ukraine, uh, still today, uh, until sometime in August, Ukraine is, is chairing the OSC Forum on Security Cooperation uh, in Vienna. And they had invited me to speak. And one of the topics for the security forum was, or Forum on Security Cooperation, was the nonproliferation of WND. Uh, MD and specifically the resolution 1540, the, the you know the non-state actors uh, sort of cooperation with states or improving expert controls in nuclear security uh, to prevent the spread of WMDs to non-state actors and terrorist groups specifically. So I'm glad to see that Ukraine is taking a more proactive stance in these issues. However, Ukraine did not vote um, in favor of say TPNW. And one of the reasons, so the ban treaty, that is, and one of the reasons it seems that it wants to be on the good side of the United States, that it still sort of is looking to, you know, United States is still a major supporter of Ukraine's effort to stave off Russian aggression. It's one of the very few states that had supplied its military equipment and 
alongside, you know, some of the other NATO countries, but, you know, to have U.S. backing <laughs> when you're facing Russia is really, really important. So I think it, 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 it has to sort of carefully balance, you know, kind of trumping up its, its non-proliferation credentials with, you know, with, sort of being on the good side of the United States ultimately in, the, in this geopolitical situation. Um, but if I can just like offer a stray comment on the, the upcoming NPT Revcom, I think it might be a blessing in disguise that it got uh, postponed because by that time we will know better about the future of New START it seems, right? Um, there will be perhaps a new administration that might have a different view on New START extension. And uh, I mean, even though I don't anticipate that somehow this rift or this, this great tension between nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states will be simply you know, brushed away, alleviated, by by extending new start um it will certainly make that tension a little bit more ameliorated uh it would be certainly better to have new start extended than not and have absolutely no arms control treaty uh between the united states and russia at all so here's the silver lining <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, you know, if we can find some some silver lining of COVID and then uh then we should absolutely uh, appreciate that and 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 notice that when when it's there. <laughs> um I'd like to shift a little bit to talk about your your research experience and and your time uh, especially in the archives in in Ukraine. You're the author of a of a, a great blog post for us about the uh, about the Budapest memorandum uh citing in that uh, in that blog post a couple of uh, of documents that you obtained from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Ukraine. Um can you just tell us and and our audience a little bit about what the experience you've had uh, working in the Ukrainian archives is like, what the what their uh, what their systems are like, what the what everything uh, what you're what what you've what you've done there and what you've experienced there. Sure, I'd love to. Um, I have to say, uh, I belong to the to that brand of researchers that enjoy research a lot more than they enjoy the writing up of their research. So um, I really did have like really cool adventures in Ukraine, but also I worked in Kazakhstan and Belarus and in Russia in their archives for this, this book of mine that's, that's going to see the world um, at some point, hopefully. Um, but in Ukrainian archives, of course, was my most active engagement, as it were. Um, and I had worked only in two archives there, the Archive of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Central State uh, Archive. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archive is, is basically located at the ministries, in the ministry's building. Uh, so it, the access to there is, is a bit more difficult to arrange. You had to uh, kind of submit a letter from your institution ahead of time. And, uh, and then when I came, you know, and I got permission, and then when I came to uh, get my pass to the pass bureau, get my sort of temporary pass into this building, uh, they're like, oh, you can't bring a laptop. You have to have a special permission to laptop. So I assumed, which I shouldn't have. So I guess one of my learning, the, the learnings from working in that part of the world in the archives, do not assume, <laughs> um, you know, ask 
about every single detail. But once I was in, uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, I, unfortunately, I had to take notes by hand and then transcribe them. But the good thing was, so the, the archive basically amounts to a room that's stacked up to the ceiling with all these files and the archivist lady or the head of the archive department of the ministry is right there so you can approach her and ask her if you can say take a photo of of a document that's uh, that's interesting for you and on on more than one occasion she agreed and she said yes and i was able to take a photo now um you know i'm not sure how kosher it was if there was a set of rules and if she was just kind of giving me a personal favor. So when I do share these documents, say with the Wilson Center or the National Security Archive, I prefer to transcribe them even in Ukrainian rather than to give an actual photo of the, um, of the document. But um, with that, I was able to, to, to find a wealth uh, of documents. And you know, all of these post-Soviet archives, they're really largely untapped. Um, so I would encourage your listeners and I would encourage researchers, it's really not as difficult as it seems and maybe language barrier is one thing, but there's plenty of research students and research assistants that are really good and really affordable that could help you get your bearings, you know, and, and help you with the research and the archives. It's really interesting. I mean, of course, you know, we're particularly interested in sort of the ins and outs of these different archives. Uh, and and one more question along that um, track before I let you go. Um, you've gotten to sort of also interview some pretty interesting figures as well. And, you know, you're sort of imagining these, these uh, you know, Soviet generals, Soviet era generals from the time. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about your experience sort of working with these guys? Are they everything that you imagine them to be or... You know, is there a lot sort of lost in translation when you watch, you know, uh, Hollywood movies and things like that? Um, yeah, so I did have a really interesting connection that I made uh, with some of the commanders of the Soviet missile forces. Uh, and one of them was the commander of the 46th Missile Division in Pervomysk in Ukraine. It was one of the two strategic missile divisions. Um, and in his missile division were the, the newer Ukrainian-produced SS-24s that at some point Ukraine considered retaining or giving up later, you know, kind of as a hedge um, or keeping indefinitely and equipping them with, with conventional payload, maybe high precision. I, I'm not sure how that would have exactly worked out strategy-wise, but... Um, I mean, military strategy-wise as a deterrent. Uh, but anyways, that was something that was considered. And to be honest, these people were not easy to find because whereas in Russia, strategic missile forces are still a thing, in Ukraine, as a military unit, they were disbanded, I think, in 2002 after you know all of the warheads were transferred and after all of the missiles were taken out of silos and after all of the silos were demolished. You know, these people were left without a job. There isn't a strategic missile force in Ukraine anymore. So they went into retirement. Um, but I did find that they have uh, a veterans union and they have their little website. And I was trying to reach out and, and find them. But in the end, I, I was able to establish contact with them in a really kind of strange and roundabout way. 
where a former co-author of mine in Canada had introduced me to his friend who is an astronaut. He's one of the Ukrainian trained astronauts and he was a double for uh, Kadenyuk, who's the only Ukrainian astronaut who went up to the International Space Station over in, I, I don't know, 96 or 98, one of those. So he trained to be his, his stand-in should anything happen. So he never actually made it into space. But uh, this, this co-author of mine tells me, oh, this guy's father was in the Strategic Missile Forces and he's now in Ukraine. So I go to Ukraine and I give this guy a call and I sort of cold call him and introduce myself that I'm this researcher and I write Ukrainian uh, nuclear history and would he meet with me? And it turns out that this guy, a general, he used to be one of the, com uh, he used to be the commander of one of the five missile armies in, this, in the Soviet Union. There were altogether five missile armies one of them was headquarters in, headquartered in Ukraine. The other four were in Russia. And he was an ethnic Ukrainian commanding this missile army in Orenburg in Russia up until 1993, so already after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and then he got transferred. To, he wanted to get transferred to Ukraine and took on a job with the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, negotiating a lot of these non-Lugar contracts, uh, non-Lugar systems program contracts uh, for, for dismantlement. Um, so he agreed to meet with me and I was really excited. So I went from like, oh, this guy was in the missile forces to suddenly he's one of the five commanders of, of the armies and he was negotiating non-Luger contracts. So as I'm trying to figure out how am I going to get out to his dacha somewhere, God knows where, outside of Kiev, he gives me a call and says, Mariana, I'm in Kiev, come to such and such address. Here is me and my colleagues at the Veterans Union uh, and we can talk to you. So I uh, turn on a dime and as one does in that part of the world, I grab a bottle of cognac, uh, brandy, and I rush to this address and I arrive at the building and it's a basement. It's basically a basement office of this veteran, veterans of the missile forces of Ukraine or something like that. And I go in and here are these two Soviet Ukrainian generals uh, and they're sitting around and they kind of give me a look at like, what is a girl like you doing researching nuclear weapons and missiles? <laughs> Which again is something one has to anticipate in that part of the world. Uh, but soon, and I have to say it, it did involve cracking open that bottle of cognac, <laughs> um, I was able to sort of establish a rapport. And um, in, uh, in the end, you know, we, we sort of become, became friends and I, I've stayed in touch with them. And when the National Security Archive organized a conference on Ukraine's nuclear history, they were too invited um, and the Wilson Center participated in, in that conference as well. And they came in and shared their recollections and made excellent contributions. So, um, yeah, these are the sort of adventures one gets into. Well, and, and, and a good researcher uses all of the tools at their disposal. So, you know, you have to be crafty at times. You have to be able to, to think on your right. feet. If so. I have to put my liver <laughs> on the line for social science, I will. <laughs> a small a small sacrifice for the good right. of, you know, uh, the rest of the researchers out there. <laughs> 
No, that's 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 wonderful. I that's I, I I do like those those little personal stories, vignettes about how you know you know were it not for a a, a brief connection, a thought, the passing thought that you have that this this history, these these voices, this perspective wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, have come to light. So it's that's wonderful to hear about, uh, Mariana. Thank you so much for 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 joining us today. Really, thank you, Kia and Peter. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.